Hello and welcome to Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. The widespread failures provoked the evacuation of office buildings, stranded thousands of commuters. Thousands of subway passengers in New York City had to be evacuated from tunnels and commuter trains also came to a halt. The police were evacuating people trapped in elevators. Telephone service was disrupted. Cash dispensing telemachines were also knocked out, so people who did not have cash on hand could not buy flashlights, batteries or other supplies. For people with medical problems, the blackout added another layer of anxiety. Emergency rooms were flooded with patients with heat and heart ailments. At Harlem Hospital, a spokeswoman said that a number of pedestrians had been hit by cars because traffic lights were out. So there was no air conditioning, no television, no computers. There was Times Square without its neon glow and Broadway marquees without their incandescence. All the shows were cancelled. So was the Mets game against the San Francisco Giants at Shea Stadium. And there was a skyline that had never looked quite the way it did last night. The long, long taut strings of the bridges were dark, the red eyes that usually blink at the very top, not red, not blinking. This, of course, was a passage from Cormac McCarthy's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Road, a post-apocalyptic story of a father and son traveling across the United States following an extinction event. Okay, I lied. That wasn't fiction at all. Those were excerpts from the New York Times article on the 2003 Northeast power outage. But you believed me for a second there, didn't you? In 2003, an entire power grid from the Midwestern United States up through the Ontario province of Canada and over to the American East Coast went down, cutting light and water for upwards of 50 million people. The incident was a lesson in how a connected world is liable to face collective problems and how more reliance on large-scale technologies means more vulnerability to large-scale problems. The 2003 Northeast blackout was initiated by a tiny software bug in the computers of an energy company in suburban Ohio called First Energy. This bug froze First Energy's alarms control system for over an hour, but First Energy's engineers failed to notice it because, well, they had no alarms to warn them. As the machines stalled, unprocessed events in the system queued up like a long line of people waiting to voice their complaints, ultimately shutting down their servers within half an hour. Then, in turn, the backup servers went down. With no visible signs of any problems, First Energy dismissed a call from American Electric Power regarding a downed 345 kilovolt power line. That line turned out to have overheated from an excess of demand, causing it to sag into a group of untrimmed trees and shutting it down entirely. Its electricity then had to be distributed to other lines, which shut down in turn. 
as the problem webbed out from suburban Ohio, connected yet independently run systems around the Northeast experienced the fallout of these original few faulty lines and coupled with the lack of coordination between managing companies, whole plants began to shut down in order to save their own equipment from damage. In all, the innocuous problem that began in Little East Lake, Ohio, would almost entirely shut down an area equivalent to a medium-sized country. The obscurity of this whole conundrum initially led to speculation about whether it could have been the work of hackers with bad intentions. In New York City, with tensions still lingering from 9-11, the ambiguity of the problem led the NYPD to act in accordance with its terrorism prevention measures. Many others thought it could have been the work of Chinese hackers, a theory that got quickly debunked. The reality was that no one was aptly prepared for an event like this, so blame was being thrown about in the face of what was really just confusion. Some in the government even blamed Canada for having caused the issue, presumably because, well, it's Canada. What are they going to do about it? But the speculation about what happened is itself important for one main reason. All those things we could imagine as having caused it could very well have caused it. Chinese hackers is an easy scapegoat, but the fact is we couldn't prove that theory wrong until we did. It very much could be that the next major blackout in the U.S. or anywhere else could be caused by hackers. So let's start with a simple question. How likely is it that our power grid has already been breached and that the enemies of the United States are running spyware and other malware in our networks? We interviewed a number of experts in the field and asked them all this same question. Every one of them, without exception, gave the same answer. I would assume uh, it's very likely. It, it is, it's highly plausible. Um, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's probably an absolute. They're probably right. The power grid is a very tempting target for cyber attacks. It is essential for the proper conduct of the states on the one hand, and on the other, it's very complex and difficult to defend. The U.S. power grid consists of more than 7,000 power plants, 55,000 substations, and millions of miles of transmission lines at different voltage levels. More than 3,000 companies and organizations maintain proper power supply in real time, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This technological and organizational complexity, combined with the extensive geographic dispersion of the electricity transmission system, creates a very wide surface area for a cyber attack, making the protection of the system awfully difficult. But the main question I want to ask in this episode is to what extent is the electricity grid really vulnerable? After all, the people who build and maintain the electricity grid are not oblivious. They know that a cyber attack is not the only threat to the network and perhaps not even the worst. Natural disasters and malfunctions are a constant specter for the proper supply of electricity, so the grid was designed and built to take into account these challenges. 
For example, when Hurricane Harvey hit the southeastern United States at the end of August 2017, it shut down several power plants and collapsed thousands of electricity poles, leaving millions of people all over Texas and Louisiana without electricity. But on September 9th, less than 20 days later, electricity was restored to 96% of consumers. So maybe our electricity grid is more resilient than we give it credit for. Does the electricity grid have any characteristics that make life difficult for anyone trying to harm it? Until recently, this question was entirely theoretical. Although our electrical system has relied on electronic command and control systems for half a century now, no one was trying to down it back in the 1960s. To the extent that there were hackers who broke into electricity utilities' computer networks, none were nation-state actors trying to damage the electricity grid and disable the power supply to consumers. But on December 23, 2015, we had a rare glimpse into the future. The first documented case of a cyber attack on an electrical power facility that led to a loss of electricity. The Ukrainian power grid, like electricity grids in many other countries, is built of layers. At the top of the pyramid, there are a small number of power plants which contain generators that produce electricity. At the bottom end of the pyramid are the consumers. Between them is a complex network of transmission and distribution subsystems whose function it is to transport electricity from the power stations to consumers and to ensure that the load is uniformly distributed throughout the system. Ukraine is divided into 24 regions, and each of them has a company that is responsible for the distribution system in its region. Imagine a tree. The power plants are the trunk, the consumers are the leaves, and the distribution companies are the branches. Yonatan Stirem Amit is the CTO of Cyberism, and he is here to explain to us the fundamental architecture of a computer network in an industrial plant, such as an electric distribution substation, and the information security challenges that come with it. I mean, most uh, power grids are built as a classical manufacturing operation, which means they have an IT network, which is where they operate, which is where the management and people work day to day, and they have an OT network, which is the industrial control system, industrial control mechanism that controls all the power grid information. So the biggest impact, the biggest challenge is the what's called the air gap, the air gap challenge, being able to hop over from the IT network, which is often connected to the internet, to the OT network, often disconnected completely. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a IT manager in a power grid. Having the fact that he has two separate networks impacts his ability to operate on a daily basis. Everyone, it for makes example, it difficult. Makes to it difficult. Operate. So yeah. the the, the const, there's a constant pull to say, let's connect. Let's make everything more open. Let's make everything more easy to use. Of course, when he, once he does that, if he's not designing for security, then they have, the work for the hacker becomes so much easier. For example, if you know, in the standard example, somebody passes USB sticks every day, every morning between computers. Because he comes in the morning, puts something, in, puts a disk on here, a USB stick, and his uh, IT-based computer copies some files and then plugs the same thing to his OT network. 
naturally the gap becomes much, much, much narrower. Mm-hmm. IT managers in the Ukrainian distribution companies faced the same dilemma described by Yonatan. They wanted to keep the business computer network and the industrial network disconnected, but their engineers and technicians wanted easy access to devices connected to the industrial computer network so they could operate it and fix remote failures. In the end, convenience prevailed. Workers were able to connect the industrial network from the business network and even from their homes. The air gap between the sensitive industrial network and the business network was effectively nullified. In April 2015, an unknown number of employees in three such distribution companies fell victim to a spear phishing attack. Emails containing Word and Excel documents were sent to a large number of employees, and those who fell for them and opened the documents had a malware called Black Energy installed on their computers. Although it has the name Energy in its name, Black Energy is not an attack tool specifically designed for energy infrastructures. It began its life in 2007 as a malware used in DDoS attacks. Its developer, a hacker named Crash, sold the source code to someone else for $700, and the malware moved through the black market for several years. In 2014, it fell into the hands of a group of hackers who turned it into an industrial espionage tool and used it to attack a number of Ukrainian companies, mostly in the field of rail transportation and communications. These, or perhaps other attackers, also tried to use it against a number of power utilities in the United States, but without success. Ukraine was another story. With black energy, the attackers spent many months collecting detailed intelligence about the Ukrainian electricity system. They penetrated the computers of engineers, technicians and managers, and from the documents they found learned everything they could about the electricity grid, down to the most intimate details, to draw from it its weak spots. In particular, they found that employees of the companies did not use two-factor authentication when they connected remotely to the industrial control network computers. This means that all the attackers needed to penetrate the industrial network were credentials, the usernames and passwords of several employees with access privileges to the system. Black Energy's keylogging functionality made it easy for them to get these credentials. The intelligence gathering phase lasted for about six months, and on December 23 at 3:35 p.m, the attack itself began. In the control centers of the three distribution companies, technicians were surprised to discover that their computers were no longer under their control. So what is he doing right now? What is he waiting for? He's trying to reach the section breaker. This is an attempt to switch off a 110 kilowatt section breaker. Mouse cursors on their computer interfaces started to move as if on their own, activating menus and pressing buttons in the control software, opening breakers in the distribution substations one by one. 
a number of astonished employees took videos of what was happening using their mobile phones. Well, what? He's trying the same thing again with the 110 circuit. We need to call the IT guys. What if it's the IT guys doing this? A few minutes later, about a quarter of a million citizens had neither light nor heating. In one case, the electricity even disappeared in the control center itself, leaving the stunned technicians in a dark, quiet room. Next came the burning the bridges phase. Breakers in the distribution subsystems are controlled by devices called serial converters. These are devices that translate the commands received from the control center via Ethernet into serial signals that the industrial control devices can understand. These serial converters are controlled by firmware. The attackers deleted the original firmware and replaced it with their own firmware that prevented the technicians in the control center from accessing those breakers and closing them again. If we think of a serial converter as a sort of a bridge between the Ethernet and control devices, you now know why disabling them is equivalent to burning bridges. At the same time, the attacker used malware called DiskKill, which erased important files on the hard disks of the computers in the control centers and totally destroyed their operating systems. Much like the sabotage of the serial converters, this action also made it harder for the technicians to regain control of the system, while at the same time obscuring any traces of the attackers. Finally, as a final step, the hackers launched a DDoS attack against the distribution company's telephone service centers. Thousands of false calls caused phones to ring non-stop, preventing service to the hundreds of anxious and angry customers wanting to report the outage and receive information. I suppose some of you are probably asking yourself, how could the attackers manage to take control of the industrial control network so easily and replace the firmware code of critical components? We posed this question to Paul Brager, technical product security leader at Baker Hughes, a GE company. You know, we spend a lot of time working with and being concerned about physical attacks, um, you know, bombs, uh, terrorists walking into a facility, blowing them up, uh, someone driving a car into something and blowing them up. And because of that, many of the industrial components and industrial tools that are out there um, are not... They were, they were built with that in mind. They were built more with resilience in mind uh, as opposed to actually cyber. Uh, now that there's become more of a need for data to be transferred out of those environments and be used as part of business decisions, um, you know, obviously you're starting to enable internet-enable infrastructure that, that wasn't traditionally designed to be that way. And, you know, you see that in oil and gas. You see that in chemical. You see that in manufacturing. Uh, you see that in wastewater and wastewater management um, and infrastructures, again, that are that are that are vital, uh, not only to America's national interests or national security interests, but certainly vital to the, the very survival of American citizens. Um, you know, as I had mentioned before, because these systems were not designed originally to be Internet facing, 
they they often don't have a, a lot of the, the the common safeguards that you would expect in general IT systems. Um, the software that that runs on many of these of these components, um, you know, may have buffer overflows. Uh, it may have, they may have inherent vulnerabilities that the development the development uh, teams didn't have to worry about because they, there was no expectation um, that these these systems would ever be exported, ever be interacted with. Um, other than with someone standing physically in front of it. Graham Cluley, a British security researcher who has been on our show several times, explains that part of the problem is the fundamental mindset of energy companies that prioritize availability over security. So it works like this. With a regular company, the most important thing of all is confidentiality. They want to keep the details, the data, the payment card information, the passwords. They want to keep that all absolutely top secret. So that's at the top of the triangle. And then they're thinking about, well, we need to maintain the integrity of the information. We need to make sure that someone isn't coming in and altering it in some way, because that would obviously be damaging as well. And finally, the thing at the bottom is availability. It doesn't actually matter if it goes down for a couple of hours, but we want it to be available most of the time. So that's that little pyramid. But what happens when you look at industrial control systems and energy grid and, and places like that is you've got to turn that triangle upside down. The most important thing for them is that the power never, ever goes off. So right at the top is availability rather than that being at the bottom, which is the case it is with most businesses. Then you're dealing with integrity. And finally, you're dealing with confidentiality. So security is turned upside down. And that, as a consequence, means that those organizations, the industrial organizations, the last thing they want to do is reboot the system or apply a patch or change anything because, hey, it's working at the moment. Let's not mess with it. Because if every time we change something, there's a chance we might break it. And we've just got to keep it going all the time. And so security, in terms of computer security, has been less of a priority for them. Now, of course, they're getting targeted. Now, of course, there's this constant pressure of, well, we need some way of using computers to control these systems. And, you know, you, you, you begin to see more and more of these systems being integrated. And th- th- there are increasing opportunities for hackers to actually get in and, and potentially mess with these systems uh, as a result. And that is the huge challenge which they face. So to sum up Paul and Graham's words, energy companies face a dual challenge. They operate legacy control equipment that was not designed with information security in mind and is difficult to replace. In addition, they are committed to near-perfect availability that greatly limits their willingness and ability to upgrade or redesign the system to be more secure. But to the Ukrainian distribution company's credit, their response to the attack was unusually quick and efficient. When the engineers and technicians realized what was happening, they quickly drove down to the actual distribution subsystems themselves and closed the breakers manually. In the end, the technicians managed to restore electricity to all of the affected areas within only six hours. 
In a detailed study of the event published by the SANS Institute, an organization that specializes in cybersecurity training, the researchers note favorably the function of the workers during the event. Quote, In many ways, the Ukrainian companies and their staff, as well as the involved Ukrainian government members, deserve congratulations. This attack was a world first in many ways, and the Ukrainian response was impressive with all aspects considered. End quote. The attack on the Ukrainian power grid made headlines. Congressman James Langevin, one of the more active representatives on issues of cybersecurity, says the Ukraine attack certainly helped raise awareness in the U.S. to the severity of the issue. There was a particular day where I, I got uh, briefed on a vulnerability to our electric grid, and, uh, and that was an a, a eye-opening uh, briefing, and it showed how vulnerable our electric grid is to uh, remote hacking that could cripple our power. potentially a whole sector of the country's electric grid, not just for days or weeks, but potentially for, uh, for months. And, uh, and that be- it made me uh, sensitive to and aware of the fact that, uh, that cybersecurity is a national security issue. And so certainly the uh, attack on uh, Ukraine's electric grid was an um, um, important moment, and it did show how... Again, kind of some of my worst fears could be, uh, could be realized. Uh, thankfully, the electric grid in Ukraine only went down for a few hours, but could have been uh, a lot worse. Who is responsible for the attack against the Ukrainian electricity grid? Normally, security experts tend to assign very little importance to attribution questions. The prevailing view is that in the world of information security, where an attack can literally come from anywhere, the identity of a specific attacker is almost unimportant. In this case, however, this question has an important bearing on the question with which I began the chapter. How vulnerable is our power grid? Superficially, it's obvious that the attack on the distribution companies was done with relatively simple malware. Spyware and attack tools like Black Energy and Diskill, which are easy to find online. Moreover, the opening of the breakers and the disconnecting of electricity to consumers, the most important part of the entire attack, was done, quote-unquote, manually, by remotely moving a mouse cursor to press buttons on a screen. Compared to the sophistication demonstrated by, say, Stuxnet, the worm that attacked Iran's uranium enrichment plant, the attack on Ukraine's power grid looks like a child's play. Is it possible to conclude that your average hacker could do the same thing to the U.S. power grid and that in case of a cyber attack, one could expect widespread power outages? Not so fast. While it is true that the tools used by Ukraine's hackers were quite simple, the real sophistication of the attack was in its planning and execution. First, we should remember that this is an attack on three different distribution companies, which, although they share a certain similarity in equipment and operating procedures, are still different companies, each with a unique control system. The attackers probably spent thousands of hours analyzing these distinct systems, building an intelligence picture and identifying their weak points. And it's unlikely that criminals would invest so much time and effort with no 
clear financial incentive. Second, writing the firmware code that destroyed the serial converters, the bridges between the Ethernet network and the mechanical breakers, requires considerable skill and intimate familiarity with these devices, which are rarely used outside the industrial world. It is also reasonable to assume that the attackers did not rely solely on luck, but rather conducted early testing with the same devices to make sure that the new firmware would work at the moment of truth. Again, learning such specific skills and setting up elaborate test benches isn't something a criminal hacker is likely to do. And finally, the attack itself was without a doubt the orchestrated and well-rehearsed action of a number of trained operators, much like an elite SWAT unit. In other words, this is not the work of a quote-unquote average hacker, but an act of a nation-state actor. And what about the simple malware tools used by the attackers? As some analysts pointed out, black energy and this kill were not central to the attack. The group that attacked the Ukrainian electricity network collected preliminary intelligence and, according to this intelligence, decided to use the simplest tools to do the work, a decision that every engineer and every soldier can stand behind. Indeed, according to intelligence assessments published in the press, the group responsible for the attack in Ukraine is a Russian hacker collective named the Sandworm Team. In the United States and Europe, Sandworm is known for its espionage campaigns against targets in NATO and West European governments, but it is difficult to prove its connection to the Russian government. It's also difficult to say for sure what the purpose of the attack itself was. Russia and the Ukraine have been at odds for years, especially since Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. The attack may be aimed at weakening the trust the Ukrainians have in their government, or it may be a signal for the United States and other potential enemies of Russia, do not mess with us. See what we can do to your electricity grid? At the end of the day, what's important is that it's probably the work of nation-state actors rather than amateurs, which means that perhaps the power grid is not as vulnerable as it seems to be at first glance. The fact that the Ukrainians managed to restore power in just six hours also illustrates another challenge to those who want to attack an enemy's country's electricity grid. The difficulty of predicting the outcome of the attack. When you send airplanes to bomb a power station, you can be sure that if the bombs hit their target, the result would be one. The power grid is shut down. But when it comes to a cyber attack, the result is not so sure. If the technicians and engineers on the other side are as talented and quick-thinking as the people of the Ukrainian distribution companies probably are, they may be able to shake off the attack quickly and the damage will be less than you expected. The attacker must plan their attack in advance in the most precise way possible to disable and destroy critical equipment to where it cannot be repaired or replaced quickly. That is not easy. The bottom line is then that even though our electricity grid seems fragile, it might not be, at least not as much as you'd think. 
you need quite a few resources, skills, intelligence, and planning abilities to carry out a successful attack. And even then, it is difficult to guarantee a successful outcome. And if we consider that the Sandworm team invested all this effort to bring down just three distribution subsystems in Ukraine for only six hours' time, one could assume that a large-scale attack shutting down the electricity system for a vast country such as the United States may not be an insignificant task, to say the least. But in spite of everything I've told you so far, things can and will change, and change fast. A cyber attack against the electricity grid is not something countries should underestimate. As the 2003 Northeast blackout has shown us, even a relatively local interruption to the electricity grid of a large metropolitan area, an action of a magnitude not very different from the attack on the electricity grid in Ukraine can cause considerable chaos and damage. The reason that countries can't afford to ignore this danger is that an attack on the electricity system is functionally an act against all the vital infrastructure of a modern state. If a power outage lasts long enough and the fuel in the backup generators runs out, the infrastructures that depend on it begin to fall one by one like dominoes. Water pumps stop working, gas pumps at stations stop, and the cellular communication disappears. Without water, fuel and communications, health systems and law enforcement cease to function. Banks close and economic activity stops. There is hardly any area of life in a modern state that is not completely dependent on uninterrupted power supply, so the stakes are simply too high. Damage to the electricity supply is equivalent to a bullet straight into the beating heart of the country. You don't have to hit anywhere else for all the other organs to cease functioning. So what can we do to minimize this terrible risk? This is a big and complex question to which we should probably devote a separate episode of Malicious Life. Paul Brager, Baker Hughes product security leader, says that a big part of the solution is to create a common language between people who are responsible for the ongoing operation of the electricity infrastructure and corresponding information security experts. You know, when you're a control operator, you're looking at a, a certain set of parameters. And as long as those parameters are correct and the, and the solution appears to be operating within, within those parameters, then you're typically not going to go any further, um, you know, to try to decipher whether or not there's something else going on. A, they don't have the time. B, they typically don't have the people. Uh, and C, they typically don't have the budget or expertise uh, to do that on the control side. And so because of that, you're starting to see a lot more interaction between control operators and people that are in kind of the, what they would consider to be the OT environment and traditional IT cyber, but they don't talk the same language. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of effort, you know, to try to bridge the gap between the two, you know, and make it not an adversarial <laughs> situation, which is what it has been, you know, in many, many years, for many, many years. Um, and making it a lot more cooperative and collaborative, but it, it's a work in progress. And while that while that work in progress is happening, 
you know, the United States, again, has a lot of enemies. And the, the critical infrastructure components that we use are the same critical, critical infrastructure components that may be used in another nation, um, even including Russia, as a matter of fact. יונתן סטריאם עמית, סייבר ריזנס CDO, underscores the importance of information sharing between the different energy companies. So politicians today have a huge role in making sure that, that the whole commercial ecosystem and government ecosystem work together. In, in, in cybersecurity, one of the key elements that are again and again repeating is the information gap. Put yourself in the shoes of an executive of a company that's just been attacked. You know, your responsibility to your shareholder of maximizing value is saying, I need to minimize the impact of an attack, potentially by not disclosing it to the public, trying to keep it secret, trying to, to minimize what happened, trying to minimize the impact. That would be, quote-unquote, responsible from a very micro-localized set of interests. But from the global good perspective, or even the, the, the commercial entity as a whole, the commercial entity world as a whole, sharing the information with the, with the right people in the technical spectrum so that the, the, the industry as a whole can adapt quickly, can change, can kind of immunize us against these kind of threats as fast as possible is in everyone's best interest. The politicians have to create an ecosystem in which this kind of information sharing is not only encouraged, it's even mandatory. So they, they have the interest of the state, then they have to make the, the hacked company, the private company, want to disclose that information to everybody. Precisely. So either it's not create, an easy job. Uh, it is very challenging. One of, the easy, one of the best way to do that is to create kind of closed forums for industry experts, industry companies, where sharing is, is kind of safe from the uh, public outcry in a sense. The other is, of course, creating an ecosystem where you have to share that information as part of public companies' uh, requirements for, for the public. So that kind of like secure forums. This is a secure place for companies or like IT experts within the companies to To share information of, of uh, their being hacked or maybe vulnerability they discovered so that other companies would be aware of those vulnerabilities, for example, right? Precisely. So in the States, we have a lot of what's called ISACs, information, information sharing groups. Uh, we have the financial services ISAC. We have the healthcare ISAC. These are self-created information sharing bodies within the industry. For example, in the financial services ISAC, FS ISAC, People and the security staff within companies feel free to share with each other information about the attacks, knowing that in order to get into these forums, you have to be a security practitioner in one of a few select set of banks. So they feel that they're offering a services company. So they feel more safe to share. Making this a, a governmental-based requirement and making sure that, that security experts from the industry are invited in will have a very impactful impact. A very impactful outcome on our ability as, as the whole industry to adapt quickly to cyber threats on a national information system. These two initiatives, improving communications between operations and IT and improving the flow of information between companies and organizations, are probably only a fraction of the actions countries need to make to ensure their power grid is safe from cyber attack. In the meantime, it seems that such an attack requires a relatively high level of skill and sophistication. But the tools and software used by the attackers are constantly improving. Will we be able to secure our electricity grid 
in time? Uh, Nate? Nate? Turn on the light, Nate. It's not funny. I can't see anything. Nate? Is anyone here? Is there anyone here? Nate? Hello? Hey? Hello? That's it. Thank you for listening. And thanks to all of you who emailed and tweeted to me to say how much you enjoy the podcast. To Lenny, Mike, Pavel, Daniela Ristovsky, and many, many others. Thank you very much. Visit malicious.life to subscribe to our podcast, read all the full transcripts, and download other episodes. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and we'll send you a Malicious Life t-shirt. You can follow us on Twitter at Malicious Life. My personal Twitter handle is at RanLevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and you can write to me at ran at ranlevy.com. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. CK Music.